I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, the impeachment trial of Donald Trump is moving forward. That's after a slim majority of senators rejected Trump's argument that a trial was unconstitutional because he's no longer in office. The Chronicle's Washington correspondent, Tal Copen, joins us today. She's covering the proceedings. We're going to ask her about her impressions of the testimony on the first day, about the politics of the moment, and about the implications for Bay Area bred leaders like Kamala Harris and Eric Swalwell. Tal, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for joining at this late hour. We're talking on uh, Tuesday night. And uh, Tal, you you watched the proceedings today. Uh, first, just tell us the basics. What what happened? So impeachment proceedings began, uh, but the, we didn't actually get into the sort of substance on whether or not um, senators should convict Trump. Of course, you, you know, just to lay the groundwork, the House votes to impeach, and then the Senate holds a trial, and the Senate can convict upon a two thirds vote, which would then impose the impeachment penalty of removal from office and open up the opportunity to add the additional penalty of disqualifying someone from holding future office. So we're in the trial phase, but arguments uh, did not get into the actual meat of whether or not Trump should be uh, convicted, but rather focused on a constitutionality question. So the arguments were really all about whether the Senate should even be having the trial because Donald Trump is no longer president. And each side, the House Democrats impeachment managers and the uh, defense attorneys representing Trump got uh, roughly two hours, uh, whether or not they took all of it, to sort of lay out their case. And then the Senate held a vote in the evening on the issue of whether the case should proceed. And it was simple, simple majority vote. So, you know, in the 100 member Senate, 50 votes plus one. Uh, and they actually, it was 56 uh, votes in favor of continuing to proceed. Six Republicans actually voted with Democrats, uh, convinced that in fact it is constitutional to proceed. It's sort of an interesting question because the Constitution doesn't actually say explicitly one way or the other. A lot of constitutional scholars seem to think that it is constitutional. Largely because, and this is what uh, House Democrats argued, it wouldn't make sense to have a situation where, you know, a president on their last day in office kind of has a get out of jail free card where they can do whatever they want. And there's no potential ramifications of that. That's not really the the spirit of the Constitution. And in fact, there is precedent not in a, in a case of a president, but there is a precedent uh, as opposed to a president, but a precedent for uh, impeaching someone after they've left office, a different office than the presidency. Uh, and, you know, but the the, the Republicans and the defense attorneys uh, who argued against the constitutionality said, because impeachment specifically contemplates removal from office, if the person is no longer in office, uh, they cannot be tried on impeachment. But the threshold question is now settled, and in coming days, uh, the actual question of whether or not to convict will be the focus. Okay, well, let's talk about the votes. 56-44. Uh, a lot of people coming in thought it might be 55. What happened? And uh, and what does that vote tell you, that it, that it was six Republicans coming over? 
Yeah. And they thought it was 55 because there was already a test vote on this. It was forced by uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, a Republican, uh, who before we even got to the impeachment trial some days ago, uh, forced a vote on this question of constitutionality. And in that vote, five Republicans voted with all 50 Democrats. So a total of 55 voted. Technically, it was to table Rand Paul's motion, but they voted to uphold the constitutionality of the trial. So we already had a marker. Uh, there was one more. So there was one mind changed uh, in the arguments today. Uh, it was Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, who, you know, he talked to reporters after proceedings and he said, basically, uh, Trump's attorneys did a bad job. He didn't think that they did a very good job laying out the case. He said it was hard to follow. And in his mind, his job as a juror is to, you know, rule on what was presented to him. And he thought the House Democrats did a very good job and the Trump defense attorneys did not. And so he voted uh, in favor of constitutionality. But, you know, it's very hard to imagine to convict Trump. Democrats will need to hit 67 votes. So they will need to convince 17 Republicans to convict Trump. And it's it's very hard to imagine a scenario at this point where after a day of arguments, you changed one mind to get from 55 to 56 to then have all those additional Republicans who have already gone on the record saying they, they don't believe the proceeding is constitutional in the first place uh, to then vote to convict. So although it showed some progress for Democrats today, also showed a very uphill climb for Democrats to actually get to conviction. Well, if that's the case, Tal, then why proceed at all? If 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 you, you may not have the votes, if if it may come down on partisan lines, and you may not have the votes to convict. There are a lot of uh, folks asking that question. A lot of, especially on the Republican side. I mean, House Democrats will say, and and generally anyone who supports conviction will say that it's it's necessary. You know, you have to go through this exercise. It's it's the only way to impose consequences on what they say is actions that were beyond the pale. They, you know, even though the arguments today focused on constitutionality, the House Democrats played an incredibly jarring emotional video that spliced together and sort of sort of put in timeline uh, the events of January 6th, the, you know, starting with Trump's comments to the rowdy crowd uh, and encouraging them to march to the Capitol and then, you know, cutting to scenes of the crowd yelling, take the Capitol and starting up the hill towards it. And, you know, including the actions of them breaching the Capitol, a woman being shot, trying to enter the House chamber, lawmakers being you know, evacuated. It was, it was rough. And especially for reporters who were there, I were not, I was not one of them, but I'm friends with many who were, it was traumatizing. And I'm sure it was for the lawmakers who were present and staff who were present that day as well. And, you know, they would say that it's, it's important for the nation to lay out the arguments that the house has said, uh, they believe Trump incited this violent insurrection and deserves to be punished. So there's that argument. And, you know, House Democrats, um, the, the the managers who serve as the prosecutors, which include Congressman Eric Swalwell, who represents Dublin and the East Bay, who is one of the impeachment managers, would say, you know, they are going into this and they are going to treat it as if every juror is 
up for grabs and they are going to do their darndest to try to convince every last one of them that they should convict. All right, let's take a quick break. We're talking to Tal Copen on Fifth and Mission. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bolwa, joined by Tal Copen, Washington correspondent for The Chronicle, who's been covering the impeachment trial of uh, former President Donald Trump. Tal, you, you talked about the arguments that were made. There was obviously, you know, like any trial, um, emotional arguments that were made. But there was also a lot of uh, fairly widespread criticism of the uh, Donald Trump's defense lawyer, Bruce Castor, who is most well known for declining to prosecute Bill Cosby in that sexual assault case uh, when he was a local DA in Pennsylvania. Uh, what, what were your impressions of uh, of the two sides' arguments? You know, our listeners could could go ahead and find a sampling of mocking tweets of Castor's performance. There were quite a few in real time. Uh, you you could look through statements by Republicans to reporters after uh, the proceedings on Tuesday, including many uh, like Susan Collins of Maine and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, and even uh, South Carolina's uh, Lindsey Graham, an ally of, of President Trump. Not many of them, uh, if any of them, were impressed with Bruce Castor. It, so Democrats, it's, they picked three of their managers to lay out the arguments on constitutionality Tuesday. So Jamie Raskin, who's the lead impeachment manager, he's a constitutional law professor and also you know, experienced the breach of the Capitol firsthand days after losing his son, tragically, to depression. He sort of led it and then... Um, Joe Neguse of Colorado, who's one of the younger members of the caucus, and David Cicilline of Rhode Island, they very carefully laid out this organized presentation on the constitutional questions mixed with an emotional appeal. You know, they played this incredible video of the events, and then Raskin said... Senators, the president was impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives on January 13th for doing that. You ask what a high crime and misdemeanor is under our Constitution? That's a high crime and misdemeanor. If that's not an impeachable offense, then there is no such thing. And it was very organized and a clear through line and made a case uh, that at least changed one Republican's mind and found compelling that, you know, the Constitution does not give a, a get-out-of-jail-free card for your last days in office uh, because then you become a former president. Then Bruce Castor stands up and for about 45 minutes kind of meandered, uh, seemed to be ad-libbing or going off loosely written notes on a legal pad, some discussion of partisanship, uh, mentioned a few of the lawmakers in the room, much to their surprise, according to reporters who were in there watching and reporting back to the rest of the press corps. Uh, no one was really sure exactly where he was going. It sort of didn't go anywhere and didn't actually speak to the constitutionality question. And then at sort of the end of the 45 minutes, he said, you know, that he had to admit that you, we changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the House manager's presentation was well done. And so they called an audible and decided to change their strategy. And then he said, okay, uh, Mr. Schoen, you're up. <laughs> and, you know, the other defense attorney um, for Trump stepped up and, and he began an actual discussion of the constitutionality questions. And it was uh, a bit in the weeds, but it was at least relevant 
to the discussion at hand and for many Republicans managed to salvage their vote uh, on Trump's side, arguing that the um, the proceedings are not constitutional. And that, of course, follows a lot of tensions on the Trump legal team that have been well documented. Um, Tal, I do want to ask you about folks that are uh, people are very familiar with from the Bay Area. First, obviously, Kamala Harris um, yes. looms large in this. First of all, um, why isn't she presiding over the impeachment trial? So the question of who would preside is actually a bit of a tricky one and came up during arguments Tuesday where Trump's legal team is actually pointing to the issue as evidence of uh, the unconstitutionality of it. But so in the Constitution, there's very little specifically spelled out about impeachment proceedings. But one of the things that is spelled out is that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presides if a president is being impeached. Chief Justice John Roberts is not presiding over this impeachment. Chuck Schumer of New York, the Senate Majority Leader, said it was up to him and he passed. Presumably, that is a reference to the fact that he does not believe it's his constitutional duty because Trump is a former president. And this is what David Cicilline said uh, for Democrats on Tuesday was that uh, there's only one president and that's Joe Biden. So Trump, therefore, is a former president, and that means that the chief justice does not preside. So the question became then, if not him, who? Uh, technically, Vice President Kamala Harris is president of the Senate, per the Constitution. Uh, but and, and there are some 18th and 19th century examples of vice presidents presiding over impeachments, but none in the modern era. So there was really no precedent for her to be the presiding officer. In reality, the vice president doesn't do much in the Senate besides break ties uh, in the modern era. And then the next in line uh, is a person called the President Pro Tempore or President Pro Tem, who is the most senior member of the majority, and that's Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont. And he is now the presiding officer of the trial, which you know, raises some questions that obviously there's some questions about whether the vice, it, it would have been awkward for Kamala Harris to preside given that she is the vice president who, you know, campaigned with Joe Biden to remove Trump from office, she would be presiding over the impeachment trial of Trump, alleging an insurrection to try to overturn the election results that installed her in office with the potential consequence of preventing Trump from running again. So there's a lot of awkwardness <laughs> involved if she were to preside. But, you know, with a with a funny aside to, you know, Patrick Leahy of, well, with all due respect and with a very honorable reputation, Trump's defense attorney said, you know, how could a person be a judge and a juror at the same time? There is a precedent for this. Patrick Leahy wrote a letter to colleagues saying he has consulted the Senate parliamentarian and scholars and research and will conduct the sort of mostly ceremonial duties of sitting in the chair and holding the gavel uh, impartially. But it, it's it's created an overall awkward, if not legally murky question of, um, and of course, who should Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris and Donald Trump could be the candidates in four years, right? I mean, it's possible. They certainly could. And, you know, at the very least, I mean, if Joe Biden runs again, I mean, she would be on the ticket. All right. Last question, Tal. I mean, Eric Swalwell, you mentioned, um, he's had some big moments in, in, in these cases. He's a 
former prosecutor in Alameda County. That's kind of where he got his start. Uh, big moment for him. Uh, he, he obviously ran for president. What does this mean for him? And, and, and you, you write that, that the GOP is, is kind of taking square aim at him and trying to tarnish him as he, as he tries to use this moment. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, senior Democratic staff, uh, Tuesday morning sort of laid out a little bit about how they expect the case to go. And they said they anticipate approaching it more or less like a violent crime trial. And so I would expect we see Swalwell draw on that experience because, you know, he prosecuted crimes. Uh, And I wouldn't be surprised if that's part of why he's in the cohort of House impeachment managers because he has that experience of trying to convince a jury that a crime was committed uh, with real victims. But Republicans in general and the right wing sort of echo chamber have really latched on to the story that broke late last year uh, from another outlet, Axios, that in the early 2010s, Swalwell was one of a handful of Bay Area politicians who were targeted by a suspected Chinese spy who interacted with him at events, placed an intern in his office, a helped fundraise for his 2014 re-election campaign. Then in 2015, the FBI gave him a defensive briefing, which is what it's referred to when you are sort of a victim in a case, but you need to know information. So they briefed him on this. They briefed House uh, Democratic and Republican leaders and intelligence leaders on the situation. He cut off all contact. Uh, so both Democrats and Republicans knew about this for years. It just came to light late, late last year. And Republicans have really seized on this and, and launched a talking point that um, Swalwell somehow did something improper, although law enforcement official has told the Chronicle he was never suspected of any wrongdoing. And there's no indication that there was ever any wrongdoing on his part or that any classified information was ever given out. The Republicans have targeted him and his role on the intelligence committee and, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy, who's the House Republican leader um, from Bakersfield, during the debate over a Republican from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's been known to espouse conspiracy theories in the past, Democrats last week um, and a handful of Republicans voted to remove her from committees, McCarthy drew a parallel to Swalwell and said Swalwell should be off the intelligence committee. He called Swalwell compromised by a spy, but he has presented no evidence uh, to back that up. Everything about it is classified. So, you know, he can say, I can't say anymore. Democrats also can't defend Swalwell because they can't say anymore. So it sort of created this situation where as Swalwell's star continues to rise, now this talking point is being built up more and more uh, against him, although there's, again, no evidence to suggest any wrongdoing on his part. Tal, before we let you go, what is the format the rest of the way? What do we expect the rest of the week? Each side will now have 16 hours of up to two eight-hour days to lay out their case, whether to it's to convict Trump on the part of Democrats or to not convict Trump uh, on the part of his defense attorneys. Then there's a little bit of time for senators to ask questions, a little bit of time for debate if there are going to be subpoenas or witnesses, although we don't anticipate any leading up to the eventual vote. 
somewhere in the range of about a week of this left to go, uh, maybe, you know, a few days to a week. There'll be long days. There'll be lots of arguments. Democrats are claiming that they will have new evidence to present, although they have not uh, given any indication what that might be. We expect it to be lots of video. It's going to be an unusual impeachment in that the victims of the case are, in fact, the jurors. They were all there that day on January 6th. They were all there for the counting of Electoral College votes, and they all experienced it. So, you know, there will be emotional appeals. If the test vote on Tuesday was any indication, it's not clear that they will be convinced. But again, um, you know, House Democrats are saying that they are approaching this with the hope that anyone uh, can be convinced with a strong enough case. All right. Well, Tal, thanks for coming on again, and we'll be watching your coverage for the rest of the week. Thank you. Thanks to my guest today, Chronicle Washington correspondent Tal Copen, to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. <laughs>